Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Emery Rowe, the author of Making the Most of Mess, Reliability, and Policy in Today's Management Challenges. Emery Rowe, how are you doing today? Doing fine. Thank you. Emery, tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, where you are now, where you've been, uh, anything that uh, you'd like to share about your uh, your background and your affiliations. Well, I'm a practicing policy analyst. Uh, I've been that for 40, over 40 years now. I've uh, done a lot of research, which I'll get into as we discuss this book, um, but most of my time has been as a, as a policy analyst working overseas and then uh, coming back in, to the U.S. and working largely in the environmental area. I had the great good fortune of uh, having started out in bureaucracy, so I'm able to, I think, able to meet deadlines, so I don't suffer, as some people do, uh, writer's block. So um, I've been able to do a a good deal of writing up my research and policy analyses for books and articles. Uh, Maybe uh, some people who read my stuff would say too too willing to Mm -hmm. do that. (laughs) But uh, working overseas, working here, uh, I published... uh, a book called Narrative Policy Analysis uh, in the early 90s, uh, more recently this mess book. And uh, it's been a long-term analytic project to look at what my field, policy analysis, has called from the beginning uh, the ability to reduce uncertainty. And uh, since uh, my 40 years of looking at it, has led me to believe that we really find it very difficult to reduce uncertainty. It becomes a way of how do we manage uncertainty. So the narrative policy analysis book was Assume Everything is a Story with a Beginning, Middle, and End, for which you can't judge the truth merits. How can you actually use literary theory, critical analysis, to evaluate these uh, highly disputed public policy narratives we have. Over time, I've uh, moved to saying, well, what happens if we are in policy messes? That is to say, where people in the actual midst of them really don't know the beginning, middle, and end. And how do you manage messes for which, um, and how do you evaluate the ability to manage messes where you don't even have a storyline or at least uh, the major participants of the people just don't know how this thing is going to end. And uh, over the 40 years, we've certainly moved uh, in the environmental area, which is my area of interest in the U.S., but also in the healthcare, financial sector, all of these, uh, to any daily reader of the newspaper, you will hear the healthcare mess, the financial mess, the immigration mess, and... uh, I finally sat down and I said, well, if it's really a mess, are we managing these like a mess? And my book argues, no, we're not. And if- So let me just, yeah, you're also a senior associate at uh, the Center for C- uh, Catastrophic Risk Management at the University of California, Berkeley. And just hearing you sort of talk about all of these different um, uh, facets of your background um, really does lead me to my first question that sort of precedes even the discussion of the book. Mm-hmm. Um and that is, um, 
you're, you write in many ways across disciplines in a way that scholars, most scholars don't. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the questions I had is, are you an economist writing about public administration or are you a political scientist writing about finance? Uh, take us through how you uh, approach your material, since it's so different than most political scientists would approach a subject and most economists would approach a subject. How do you see your sort of your approach as as is interdisciplinary the right way to describe it, or is there another way that you think about it? Uh, well, for certain, it would be interdisciplinary. The uh, uh, mess book is dedicated to Pat Cresine and uh, Aaron Wildowski. Uh, both of whom set up uh, among the first three public policy programs in the late 60s and early 70s. Cresine did it at the University of Michigan. Waldowski did it at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, both of whom I knew over uh, the course of my own career. And both were extremely interdisciplinary and both were extremely willing to say things were complex rather than to simply uh, talk those complexities away. Um, some professions, mainline professions, are much more willing to assume complexity away. Policy analysis from its very creation in the American setting in the 60, late 60s and 70s was interdisciplinary and has been interdisciplinary. That is a bit of economics, a bit of political science, a bit of, bit of research methods, a bit of the law. How would you use these different, uh, if you will, lenses to triangulate, to converge on what would be a way to actually handle the issue you're given to analyze and make recommendations on as a policy analyst? So uh, I think I'm very much a product of my, my discipline. And, and part of what... Um well, part of the challenge of, of truly interdisciplinary writing, including very good interdisciplinary writing like yours, is terminology. Because the terminology doesn't sit in any given field, it's very helpful to clarify what we mean first. And you do that very well in the book. So let's, let's talk about some of the terms you use. What is a high re, uh, reliability system? What, what is it? What, what's an example of a high reliability system? Well, uh, let me just digress a bit is... While I've been writing for policy analysts in a series of books, the narrative book, uh, a subsequent book on taking complexity seriously, more recently, the mess book, my area of specialization has been on the environment and on critical infrastructures uh, that actually use ecosystem services and ecosystem functions. There again, we get into the terminology, but if you think of large water supply systems, large electricity systems dependent in part on hydropower, uh, telecommunication systems, transportation systems, a variety of these large technical systems have control rooms. And it's been my great good fortune to work with colleagues over the years, for the last 15 years, on trying to understand how control rooms provide uh, real-time reliability in systems that are so complex that the theory would say you should have far more accidents or make many more mistakes uh, than are actually currently evident in these systems. So a high reliability system is a large technical system, a critical infrastructure, 
that provide safe and continuous critical services even under, especially during turbulent times. Okay, so there's a storm here. It's still, you, you turn the light switch on and the electricity comes. Uh, there is a, a major shutdown in the electricity system. Well, your telecommunication system still works because you're relying on a redundant system, and a system that just doesn't depend on electricity alone. Your telecommunication system fails. You are able to have redundancy or backups to maintain real-time provision of these telecom services, electrical services, water services. And that is a fascinating field because everything in theory says these things shouldn't be as reliable as they are. A big part of your um, uh, book uh, are about people, um, so on some level. Um, so who are the people working in high re reliability systems? Um, what are they like? How do they approach their work, in uh, whether it's in telecom or um, electricity or, or the environmental sector? Wh who are the people in, in your book? Well, they're supreme mess managers. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the moral of the, the or the... The upshot of the book is to say, if we actually understood or mimicked the way these control operators actually manage their systems and apply that process cognitive model and learning skills to other messes like healthcare and finance, we would be farther along than we currently are. So let me describe what these people um, are actually doing. I think if many, uh, many of your uh, listeners, if you thought of a control room of a large technical system, you think of uh, individuals in front of computer screens, uh, and it's very quiet and highly technical, and some of that actually goes on. But what you need to, if you look at these systems as long as we have, but my colleagues and I have, uh, you realize that in these control rooms, there are thing, uh, attitudes or behaviors called team situational awareness, where you do see in individuals in front of screens, but they're actually all operating as one unit because they are in the bubble, as they say. These, these people have incredible skills at knowing what's going on and what the, their colleagues in the room are doing. Now, why is this important? Because... These large technical systems, your, the myth of these systems is you just have the isolated person in front of his or her screen and the system sort of chugging along and these people are simply monitoring it and pushing switches or hitting certain parts of the screen. That's actually not the case. Uh, most of these large technical systems have surprises all the time. Things that were, weren't designed uh, in uh, different contingencies that come up, uh, incomplete software, incomplete hardware. They're constantly um, on-the-fly control room operators to maintain reliability in the face of surprise. So your listeners should immediately see a connection that if they, in fact, find themselves as professionals either studying or operating in systems that pretend or maintain they should be reliable, like healthcare, um, that should resonate, that description should resonate. That is, these people manage in the face of surprise. They're extremely resilient. 
That is, they bounce back from surprise, but they're more than resilient. They're anticipating the next step ahead or the next steps ahead as they do their bouncing back. Again, a skill that um, real-time operators in uh, many professions we depend on, uh, with or without control rooms, uh, that these people, that these professionals do need and capitalize on, uh, should capitalize on. So let's let's talk about another term that that is um, well in the book title, which is um, what is a mess, and 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 what is the difference between a mess and a problem? Uh, help us with this uh, sort of the provocative aspect of the title of your book. Yeah, the um, I think many people would describe in natural language, uh, mess is is a problem in my own profession. We have a variety of uh, specialized terms ranging, and they may not seem uh, specialized to to your listeners, but we've danced around the subject in many different ways, muddling through, suboptimization, coping, uh, gradualism, incrementalism, um, all these efforts about uh, having... The gap between having been trained to solve a problem versus what we end up actually doing in terms of trying to address that problem. A mess is important because it is not only a uh, term that is used by real-time practitioners. I didn't have to invent this, the healthcare mess, the financial mess, the immigration mess, the uh, economy mess. Um, this is the way people describe it, not just journalistically, but the people who actually are trying to manage these things. A mess is, is extraordinary in the sense that the people in the midst of it really don't have a sense of uh, how it will end. They certainly don't have a sense of who the heroes and villains will turn out to be in this. They may have some idea of candidates and so on, such as in healthcare. Or the financial mess, but the actual people in the middle of trying to maintain reliability of financial services and healthcare services, let's say at health.gov, healthgov. Uh, uh, healthcare website, they're caught up in in just so much real time uh, mess management for the purposes of trying to maintain reliability. The book actually tries to provide several different frameworks to take that insight, uh, that insight being it's more than a problem because it's not a problem that can be solved. Messes are, are managed. They're not cleaned up. Messes are, in fact, um, uh, you pull a good mess out of a bad mess. It is less about trying to if you will uh, provide a optimal solution to a problem. All this is very important because my profession policy analysis is characterized by uh, some people as having uh, sold a product uh, in the master's mills about rational decision-making, and I, I, at least the, the schools of public policy I'm familiar with, um, and uh, Kreisine and Woldowski, uh, that was never the case. The case was always that these problems are so very difficult uh, 
and so very complex that you really do have to have a management skill as well as an analytic skill. Now, you you just raised this uh, distinction between a good mess and a bad mess. Um, maybe you could describe for us a good mess, uh, a mess that has been managed well, and most importantly, a mess that things have been learned from. Yeah. Is there an example that sticks out to you of a, of a good mess? Oh, yes. Uh, let's take... Um the uh, a mess uh, familiar to your listeners is the financial crisis. I think everyone who has read uh, in the media, the newspapers, and/or the books about the financial crisis, have read a narrative or story about an incredibly bad mess. In fact, not just a financial mess, a financial crisis. But if you actually look at the financial mess, that is the period from roughly to end of 2007, 2008, 2009, um, if you actually look at it, you'll find that there were any number of good messes uh, that were actually underway. And part of the challenge in, that my book tries to address is to renovate and rehabilitate the notion of a good mess. We should be looking for these things. So what was the good mess in the financial crisis? Well, most certainly, um, those of uh, your, your listeners are probably uh, uh, assuming in their own work that everything is connected to everything else. Indeed, the financial crisis was described as a crisis of lack of risk management in the face of interconnected systems. Well, that was true for the financial sector, but the big dog that did not bark during the financial crisis was that the failure of the financial system did not impact to a very large extent or even noticeable extent these other critical infrastructures. Financial services in the United States is considered an infrastructure by the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security considers all of its listed infrastructures as interdependent, interconnected to each other. And yet, when the financial crisis went into, when the financial sector went into freefall, roughly 2008, we still were maintaining electric systems that depended on bonds and capital funding. We still had reliable water supply systems also depended on uh, financial sector all the way down the line. So one of the good messes out of the bad mess of the financial crisis is understanding that uh, our professionals who operate these critical infrastructures are actually able in real time to buffer them, protect them from um, the spread of contagion in other infrastructures, in this case the financial. Now, I go at length on this issue, and I could take any number of other issues and talk about good messes, but it is this ability of reliability professionals out there to buffer in real time some of the negative impacts that come from the infrastructures that they're dependent on, that we should actually think about propagating for other other policy analysts and professionals, and in fact, 
they do it. It's just we don't look at it and treat it uh, as part of our profession, in this case, a profession of policy analysis and public management. Yeah, one of the things that intrigued me about the book, and, and maybe in the interest of, of sort of wrapping up the conversation, sure. is when a book like this comes out uh, for you, um, you know, working in the, the area of policy analysis, um, have you had opportunities to uh, share the book or share pieces of the book or, or, or present aspects of this to people working in these various uh, uh, systems? And, and what is their response? What is the response of of the, the, the technician or the, the person working in the, the, the um, electricity grid uh, uh, office. Um, have you had opportunities where you've been able to get that kind of feedback from the, the kind of people who are involved in actually implementing uh, these, these complex systems that you talk about? Um, for certain. I mean, that's uh, maybe I have a, a, certainly I have a sample that may not be representative but it is uh, it is one of the great pleasures of working with uh, middle level and the frontline managers who see themselves as mess ma- mess managers writ large or reliability professionals par excellence is that to talk to them and to actually describe back to them what I see and my colleagues see them doing. So if you will, in in the fancy terminology, we come up with a meta-language that allows them, the practitioner, the professional, to see themselves in it, but in such a way as they, it isn't solely their terminology, so they can see not only themselves in a slightly different light, but also see where the challenges are uh, to doing what they do, because they're Strengths are their blind spots, as in any discipline. And so this ability to describe back to people in a slightly different language, and the MESS book has a series of frameworks that try, tries to do that. Um, one of the frameworks is um, looking at performance modes of just-in-time, just-in-case, uh, just-for-now, and just-this-way performance modes. That has resonated with a number of people inside and outside organizations. It must be a, a, just a real enjoyable part. I, I know talking about the, the work that I've done with students is always really enjoyable, yeah. and, and to, to have this an audience that, um, well, is making such um, important uh, day-to-day, second-to-second, hour-to-hour decisions um, must be a, a, just a very enjoyable part of, of uh, writing in, in this area. Um, I hope that... Uh, People are able to go out and and, uh, get this book published by Duke University Press, uh, Making the Most of Mess, Reliability and Policy in Today's Management Challenges, published by Emery Rowe. Emery, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you. Thank you.